Live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about, on second thought, let's not go to Mars, and missing an opportunity. And of course, taking listener questions about all things in this beautiful universe, we record the show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. So go to our website, spaceradioshow.com, and leave a voicemail so that you can get your question on the air. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about... The language of science. Hello, space fans. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State. And for the next half hour, you're agent of the stars. Got an exciting show for you today on Space Radio, where we talk about all the beautiful things in this universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern here in Studio A. That is the best studio in the world. WCBE Radio Columbus. If you want to get your voice on the air, go to spaceradioshow.com and you can leave a voicemail directly on our website any time of the day from anywhere in the world. It is true. Get those questions in. We'll have a nice little chat. You can also follow along on our live streams on YouTube and Twitch. Go to spaceradioshow.com for the links to those and you can tune in live with the space cadets from around the world, including but not limited to Istanbul, Turkey. Love Istanbul. Red Roof, England. I suppose it's a nice town too. Moore Park, California. Lyons, Colorado. Stovinger, Norway. Battleground, Washington. Pell City, Alabama. Walthamstow, I probably mispronounced that, UK. London, UK. And Princeton, New Jersey. Send me questions there too, folks. I mean, you're basically in charge of this show, except you're not. Before I start taking questions, I did want to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently. And there's two lovely, lovely and and quite tragic, actually, Mars stories here that I wanted to bubble up for you. First, opportunity, man. The little rover that could. Actually, it's not so little. It's like the size of a, a minivan. It's a pretty big rover. And yeah, it's done. It's done. Pour one out on your Martian soil because opportunity is over. This thing, this little craft, this little little dude had a mission span of like 90 days. 90 days and it went for 15 years. It was explore, supposed to explore one crater, visited like three craters and a valley and then all the bits in between. It was supposed to go something like uh, a thousand yards or something ended up going 28 miles in its mission and what finally did it in unfortunately was that giant dust storm over this summer over this martian summer where the entire planet got locked in a single cloud of dust blocked out too much sunlight opportunity couldn't recharge its batteries it couldn't use its batteries to communicate or do science and it just never recovered from that since the summer since the ending of the storm nasa engineers and scientists have been trying to communicate it trying to revive it trying to get back to normal operations but just couldn't so they had to call it they and they pulled the plug and i'm sorry so a moment of silence for an opportunity that we will always miss and speaking a moment of science over now speaking of <laughs> mars landing on mars is hard it's really 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 hard because mars has a little bit of an atmosphere but not much it's like one percent the air pressure of the earth's and 
usually when we land stuff on big planets, like say the Earth, say we're bringing a spacecraft back to the Earth, we use big giant parachutes because we have a lot of air and there could be a lot of drag and this slows down the thing so you don't just go splat into the ground. Now, on Mars, you don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. You have to use rockets to do that. But rockets need fuel. And if rockets need fuel, you need to bring the fuel with you to Mars, which means you need to get it up off the Earth and send it to Mars and take it with you. So that takes up weight. That takes up space. That costs money. And this is a very, very tricky engineering challenge of how do you get humans on Mars. So the heaviest thing we've sent to Mars is around one ton. How do you get, say, a five to 20 ton vehicle to Mars, which is what it would be needed to send people there? Well, you need big rockets to land them, but the rockets themselves need fuel. And you can't just pack extra fuel because then you need bigger rockets to get all the other. It's a complicated problem. It's a very complicated problem, but we're working on it. All right. And so this to me just highlights one of the many engineering challenges. This is not an impossible problem. This is not something we could never solve, but it's something that we're going to have to fix. We're going to have to figure out if we want to send people to Mars. It's not just let's build a big rocket and there we go. We can get people to Mars. There's a whole chain of technology that needs to be developed and needs to be solved in order to get us to Mars. And then once we're there, let's hope there's no giant globe spanning dust storms that will, you know, kill us all like the little opportunity rover. That's the latest and greatest when it comes to space. I didn't mean to get so melodramatic, but it's time to answer some questions. And here we go from Terry. Hit the button, Greg. Hi, Paul. Terry Crook here again. If a moving object has more mass, what is the speed associated with the object having zero mass in the same way as removing the kinetic energy produces a absolute zero temperature? So moving objects weigh more. This is the fundamental idea behind Terry's question. The faster you move, the more you weigh, the heavier you are. Why? Because... Energy is mass. You know, good old-fashioned E equals MC squared. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Take out the speed of light. It's just a conversion factor. It's just a number floating around. The bare bones of that equation is E equals M. Energy equals mass. Mass is energy. Energy is mass. Drill that into your brain. If you have mass, you have energy. If you have energy, you have mass. They are two sides of the same coin. That means a hot cup of coffee weighs more than a cold cup of coffee. That means a baseball in your hand weighs less than a baseball when you throw it because the thrown baseball has kinetic energy, which is what Terry was asking about. And he was asking, what's like the minimum mass? Right, right. If you're not moving at all, what is your mass? So it's actually, this is going to take a bit to untangle. All motion in our universe all motion in our universe is relative. There's no such thing as absolute speed. There's no absolute reference frame. There's no set of grid lines out there that we can all compare to. No, all motion is relative. 
I can only tell something is moving relative to me in comparison to me where I look like I'm standing still and something moves across my field of view. But according to that thing that's moving, they're staying still and I'm the one that's moving. It's all relative. So if something is at rest relative to me, where I'm standing still and they're standing still and nobody's moving, then they have a certain amount of mass associated with them. Like I'm staring at Greg right now. There he is. I'm staring at Greg. He is at rest relative to me. He's not moving left, right, up, down, back, forth. He is at rest relative to me. He has a certain amount of mass. I'm not going to ask him how much he weighs. I know he's working on it, and so we're going to keep that number pretty sensitive. So he has a certain amount of mass. This is what's called, in some circles, this is what's called rest mass or bare mass. We're just going to call it mass. The mass you have is your mass at rest, like your mass according to you. I am at rest relative to myself by definition. I'm not moving away from myself, although sometimes it feels like it. I'm moving. I'm not moving. So I have a rest mass or I have a mass. That is the number on the scale. Now, if I were to start running, I would have some kinetic energy and I would have more mass. But I would have more mass only relative to Greg if he's watching me. Greg would say, oh, yeah, Paul, you, you know, you're getting bigger. You know, as you run, you have a little bit more mass. All these measures are relative. So according to me, I only have my mass. But according to other observers who are watching me, my mass can get higher the more energy I have. This is a fundamental concept in relativity that all motion is relative. What relativity does, what this theory of special relativity does, is give us the language to translate back and forth between different kinds of mass and different kinds of velocity and different reference frame, where at first it seems like this mad jumble where nothing makes sense, where, you know, everything is relative. Everyone has different speeds. Everyone has different masses. Like, and it's almost like it's like a madhouse. What special relativity is, is the conversion book. And say, okay, if you're moving relative to this, this is what their masses look like. And then it, you can translate, okay, by in according to their position and their reference frame, this is how much mass they're observing and how fast they're going, what other people are doing. It's the conversion book. It's the translation between all the different reference frames in the universe. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We got to go on break here in a little bit. This show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can support the show, and I will see you after the break. You'll never be as young as you are today, so don't waste another moment not attending to the most important brand in your life, you Inc. Join me, Rhea Greif, Saturdays at 2.30 p.m. to hear commercial photographer Autumn Theater, who helps brands plan and curate image libraries, create a hope plan for her successful battle with a brain tumor. That's you, Inc., every Saturday at 2.30 p.m. on Central Ohio's NPR station, 90.5 WCBE. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got Space Cadet questions all lined up. Wonderful questions today. Starting off, we've got Thunderduck on YouTube. Well, what is the smallest particle of matter that can be affected by a magnetic field? So if you 
are feeling like you want to be affected by magnetic fields, you need electric charge. Electric charge is the key to your happiness when it comes to magnetic fields. If you have an electric charge, if you are not neutral, if you're either positive or negative, and you are moving, then a magnetic field can influence you and it will deflect the path of your motion. It will make you go sideways, curve around. Magnetic fields are very curvy kinds of forces. And the smallest, lightest particle that can be affected by magnetic field is the smallest, lightest particle that has electric charge. And that is its namesake, the electron. The electron is the lightest particle that has an electric charge. It's very, very tiny. 0.5 mega electron volts, if I'm remembering my physics jargon, which basically makes no sense to most of the audience. And we're going to be okay with that because we're just going to remember that electrons are really, really tiny. They do have electric charge, hence the name electron. And so they can be and are frequently affected by magnetic fields. As in the case, you remember those old cathode ray tube TVs, you know, the big boxy ones? The picture was generated with electrons being moved by magnetic fields. Next question, we got Sam Pollard on YouTube. How can a photon have energy but not mass? You know, back in that little segment a little bit ago, I was going on and on and on about how energy is mass. Mass is energy. If you have mass, you have energy. If you have energy, you have mass. I was correct. I did leave something out. The Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared, is not the full equation. There's another part that gets left off most of the time because it's not as punchy. It doesn't quite fit on a t-shirt. The full equation, let's see if I can do it off the top of my head. It's E squared equals m squared c to the fourth plus c, p squared c squared. I think I did it right. I'll say it in words so we can all get there together. Energy is mass plus momentum. Aha, uh -huh. that's the missing piece. Energy, total energy, equals mass plus momentum. Now, usually we leave that momentum piece off because we're trying to examine how much energy you have just by virtue of your mass. But as Sam Pollard mentioned in his question, photons don't have mass. So how can they have energy? Because they have momentum. They don't have mass, but they do move. They can hit you in the chest. They can push you a little bit. They do have momentum. And because they have momentum, they do have energy. Great question. Now, next on the list, we got weekend party. Call me, by the way because I could use a party on this weekend. Weekend Party on YouTube is asking, how could a supervillain realistically destroy the sun? Now, I'm not going to give you the easiest way to destroy the sun because I suspect, Weekend Party, that you are a supervillain and I'm not really up for aiding and abetting supervillainy on the Earth or the solar system or, quite frankly, the entire universe. It's just against my moral code. So I'm going to have to withhold some information about destroying the sun because I don't want to give you that knowledge and then you go do the thing to destroy the sun because I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of the sun. I think it's great. It's wonderful to have the sun in our lives and we should probably not destroy it. But there are a lot of ways to destroy a star. All of them require massive amounts of energy. 
All of them require massive amounts of energy. The easiest way to destroy a star is to wait. Stars eventually destroy themselves because they run out of energy. They can't keep producing fusion reactions in their core to maintain the equilibrium necessary to sustain themselves, and they usually end up blowing themselves up in the process. So if you want to destroy a star, just go get a coffee or something. You know, just chill out for a while, you know, a few billion years or whatever, but eventually the star will destroy itself. Another way to destroy a star is to pick it apart one by one, just reaching in like buckets, bucketfuls of plasma, get that hydrogen helium, chuck it out into the outskirts of the solar system and just dismantle the star. That requires a tremendous amount of energy, as you might imagine. More energy. I, I remember doing this calculation once. And I forget the results. I believe if you want to disassemble the sun, it takes more energy than the sun will produce in its lifetime. But I may not be correct on that. Another way is to seed the star with a bunch of heavy elements so that they sink into the core and disrupt the fusion process. Now, again, this is not going to be an instantaneous thing. In fact, by the way, you could shut off the core of the sun. Like you could just snap your fingers and the core of the sun, all the nuclear reactions in the sun would shut off. And it would take somewhere around 100,000 years before the surface of the sun would start to change before the changes that you wrought in the core would propagate out to the surface. So, again, if you're going to try to destroy the star either by disrupting fusion reactions or accelerating them, it's still going to be a waiting game. Like, stars are very, very stable things. They're just really, really good at being stars and it's hard they got their game going on pretty good and it's hard to to shake them loose from that we got another question on youtube i'm doing lots of youtube questions this is great from dominic wally on youtube how can we know in advance that we won't land in a dust bowl on mars that eats our lander or rover this is a wonderful question the answer is we don't it is so hard to predict these Martian dust storms, especially the giant ones that span the globe. They happen every few years or so. And in fact, during the dust storm that happened this summer, NASA's InSight mission was on its way to the red planet. And we were starting to get a little bit nervous. There was a little bit of nail biting going on, a little bit of gnashing of teeth that by the time InSight got to Mars, the dust storm would still be happening and it might screw up the landing. Now, inside itself is not solar powered. It's nuclear powered. So it's all good. But like it could have messed up the landing. It could have, you know, it, you know, it couldn't do its guidance sensors. It couldn't map out the terrain. We were seriously worried. Thankfully, the dust storm cleared. Insight landed just fine as continued its science mission ever since. But it's a crapshoot. You don't know. You got to roll the die. I mean, space... Man, you think Earth is hard and nature is random on Earth? Just wait till you get to space. All right, it's like next level difficulty. It's it is it is advanced um, man versus nature. Like Earth, surface of the Earth. This is level one. This is the beginner level. This is where we have air and water and everything we need to survive. We just got to fight a bit for it. You get out in space, you got nothing. Yeah, you got nothing. Happy Valentine's Day. We're almost out of time on space radio. Before we go, it's time for the blue ship. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is Blue Shift, my opportunity 
to get a little bit closer to you. So yesterday I was at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. I've never been there before. Absolutely lovely campus gave a seminar to the physics department there. And I talked about the language of science and science communication because I'm kind of interested in that kind of stuff. And what I try to point out to scientists, and now I'm going to point out to you, the non-scientists, is that science speaks a different language. Science speaks a different language. Science is done. The work of science is science is done in mathematics. Mathematics is the language that scientists use to understand the world. This is how we do it. We don't do it with... With, I mean, there's a lot of natural language and a lot of descriptions. I certainly had to write a bunch of papers in my life. But at the end of the day, it's all about the math, to model things, to observe things, to get the statistics, to verify. It's all done in math. Mathematics is the language of science. And it is the language of nature as viewed through science. So every time I go on the show or do an event or whatever or write my book, I am translating the mathematics. I'm translating from another language. And just like any other translation, it's never going to be perfect. There are going to be nuances that aren't picked up. There are going to be some details missing. There'll be some things that are misinterpreted. That is the way of life. So if you're ever perplexed by a topic in science, be patient with yourself. Take your time. Realize that there's no problem. You're a very smart person. You're a very intelligent person. You just don't speak mathematics and the mathematics, uh, especially ingrained in science. That's okay. You can be very, very smart, but just not happen to know this language. So if some concepts uh, start to become difficult, aren't very clear, just take your time. You got to translate for a while. You got to soak in it for a while before you get there. So just be patient with yourself. If you're ever having difficulty, and then my challenge to the scientists, the academic community, is do the work of translation. Don't expect your audience to translate things for you. You got to be the ones to translate the science to them. And before I go very, very quickly, we are taking reservations for our all-stars party. It is a stargazing adventure in Joshua Tree National Park, which is now open and very, very clean. Don't worry, we talked to the park rangers. It's all cool. It's at the end of June. It's a long weekend in June. It's gorgeous dark skies, gorgeous area. It's domestic trip. It's pretty cheap. It's an affordable trip. Go to astrotours.co, astrotours.co. Go to the all-stars party. Sign up right now. We need reservations like now. Get it in. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost on. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by the Ohio State University Department of Astronomy. Learn more at astronomy.osu.edu. The show is also brought to you by you, lovely, lovely you. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space cadets, Dan Michalka for being awesome, and all the fine crew at WCBE Radio for making this show possible. We record this show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. You can leave a voicemail on our website so you can get your voice on the air. You can also catch the YouTube and Twitch live streams. Go to spaceradioshow.com for all those links and information. You can also follow me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'm at Paul Matt Sutter. And of course, thanks again, Earthlings, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing. End of transmission. 